Good morning. Um, as Ben said, if you have your Bibles, please turn to John 17. And we're going to be looking at the first five verses today. And just as a heads up, we're going to start here and then spend a little bit of time elsewhere and eventually get back to here. So if you feel like I thought we were talking about John today, we'll get there. Just give me some time. Um, John 17, verse 1 through 5. I'll read it, pray, and we'll start. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. Since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful. We're thankful that we can freely assemble and hear your word, to read from it together, to listen to it together, to stand in awe of you together. We're thankful for the work that you're doing around the world and making your word accessible to the people like the Dai people in Southeast Asia calling to Yourself people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we're thank you. We're, we're thankful for the men and women, the hands and feet that are willing to labor. And Lord, we, just, we know that, Lord, not everyone is, is called to go. Everyone, though, is called to proclaim Your Word, to serve on the hill that You have given them, to defend the outpost that You have given them in their lives, in their families, in their workplace, wherever they are, Lord, to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And Lord, this can only be done as an overflow of the joy that exists in the heart. So we pray that You would cultivate that this morning. Stir us where we have become dull. Give us eyes to see that have grown dim. Do it for Your own sake. In Jesus' name, Amen. So if you've been with us the last couple of weeks and even months, you would have known that we've been going through the book of Acts. It's typically what we do here. We'll take a book of the Bible and just truck through it. We believe everything that's in the Word is, is precious, is important, God intends for us to hear. So we'll typically take a book of the Bible and work through it. We just finished Acts. In about four weeks, we're going to go through 1 John, just looking at family on mission, just that sort of our DNA as a church, being the family, the body of Christ, and engaging people with the gospel. But for the next four weeks, we're going to take a, a brief break and just want to look at the Savior, some big picture beholding of who Jesus is 
And so Travis, in, in four weeks, is going to do um, a sermon on the coming of Jesus. Sean, prior to that, is going to do the majesty of Jesus. Next week, Craig will be doing the sacrifice-filled ministry of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the ultimate aim of Jesus. What is the ultimate aim of Jesus? Why did He come into this world into our world? Why did He take our nature upon Himself? Why did He come here? What was His ultimate aim? The answer to that question is answered answer to a very similar, perhaps simpler question of why, why does the world exist at all? This world that Jesus came into, that He invaded, why does it even exist in the first place? And I was looking at a, a short little video clip that... Um, a pretty renowned guy did. His name was Neil deGrasse Tyson. If you haven't heard of him, he's probably one of the most popular, if not the most popular, astrophysicists in our country today. A brilliant, brilliant man. And the video clip was about how he couldn't understand, with his version, his understanding of what Christianity and, in general, theists, that is, people who believe that there is a God, how they can believe that the universe exists with its primary purpose of, of having a humanity, having this race of human beings. This astrophysicist, with all of his, his brilliance, can't understand why. And to, in his perspective, it, it, it just makes no sense. Because when you look at just the vastness of space and how minuscule we are by comparison. He's saying, look at our Milky Way. The Milky Way is 100,000 light years in diameter. That's our galaxy. A light year is how fast light can travel in a given year. The speed of light is 186,282 miles per second. Traveling at that speed, it would take 100,000 years to cross our galaxy. The closest galaxy to ours is the Andromeda galaxy. 2.5 million light years away. Of the galaxies that we know of, there are some 100 billion galaxies that we know of. This little planet that we exist on, you Christians believe, according to Tyson, that all of this, this exists for us to show the value of, of us that just doesn't make sense. And furthermore, if you believe in evolutionary theory, which he does, I'm not advocating one way or the other, humans have only been on the, in this universe for 99.99, or they've missed 99.99% of the universe's history. If they're the center of the universe, why have they only been here this blip of a second, on this blip of a planet? It makes no sense. He would be right if that's what Christians believe. If we believe that the universe exists to show us the value, the intrinsic value of human beings. But that's not primarily why the universe exists. The universe does not, the heavens aren't declaring the value and importance of man. According to Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens exist. Space, stars, planets, pulsars, quasars, they exist to show, to declare the glory of God. Everything exists to declare the glory of God. Everything that God does, 
including why Jesus came into this world, was to show and to highlight the glory of God, His, his fame, His renown, his, his presence, His beauty on display for all of creation. That is why God does absolutely everything He does, to hold Himself forth as the treasure of all creation, to give us a clear glimpse of this infinite being. It is for the glory of God. And what I want to do briefly before jumping into John 17 is just showing how by just, in a bit of an unorthodox way, just going through the Bible and looking at different texts where you can see that this is the drumbeat behind this Bible, this Word, that everything God does, He does for His glory. It will be listed in a bunch of different ways, either His glory or for His name or for His praise. But everything that He does is to show who He is. And so, we'd ask the question, why did God create us? Why did He create us? Isaiah 43, verses 6-7 through seven says, God says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory created them for me. Why did God call the tiny nation of Israel to Himself? Jeremiah 13.11 I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, so that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. When that nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt, why did God choose to rescue them? says in Psalm 106, 7, through 7 and 8, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet He saved them for His name's sake, that He might make known His mighty power. Why did God raise up Pharaoh to oppose the people of Israel in Egypt? Romans nine seventeen. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, so that I might show my power in you and that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. Why did God defeat Pharaoh at the Red Sea? Exodus 14.4 And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Again in verse 18 he says, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. After the exodus, the people rebelled against God in the wilderness. Why did he spare them? For their sake, ultimately? He says in Ezekiel 20 verse 14, I acted... For the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Whenever God's people continue to sin and rebel against Him and turn away from Him, why does He not cast them away? According to 1 Samuel 12, verses 20 and 22, He says, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, for the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. Why did God restore Israel from exile from among the nations? 
Ezekiel 36, 22-23 Thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. Why is God ever merciful in extending salvation and grace to a people who don't deserve it? And perhaps one of the clearest verses in the Bible about God being zealous, eager to, to highlight His own glory. Isaiah 49, 48, verses 9-11. through 11, He references His glory in some way six times in the span of two verses. He says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now, when I first heard all these things, first started understanding more and more that God does everything for His glory to, to, to show an accurate, to cast an accurate picture throughout the universe of who He is that He might be savored and relished and cherished rightly. It still came across to me as selfish, right? Like, it seems in every other instance in our lives when someone is entirely devoted to themselves... When someone is entirely about pursuing their own reputation, their own name, holding themselves out, putting their interests before yours, isn't that, isn't that a bit of a turnoff? For example, my wife was uh, talking with me this morning, and I, was, uh, I told her I was going to share this, so I'm allowed to do this. But does our our oldest our daughter? She's at this stage. She's at that stage where like everything is about her. Like anything that she does, she wants you to see, even if it's not that impressive. So my wife is saying that like she is just she's she's getting to an annoying point now. She'll go up to my wife and say, "Mommy, mommy, mommy, look, mommy, look, mommy, look," and mommy say, "What is it?" And she'll just be like, and sit down on the couch, like that was it. That's what she wanted to show you. That's what I can do. Or she'll like take a toy and just like fidget it in her hand and say, Mommy, look, Mommy, look, and just drop it on the floor. Like, isn't that impressive? And it's like you want to say in your heart, you just wasted 10 to 15 seconds of my life over this nonsense. But you can't say that to your daughter. You have to encourage her to do it again and tell her how much she's growing and how smart she is. But even at this small age, that that desire of like, I want to be the center of attention. I want to show you how great I am. Generally speaking, that's, that's a turnoff, right? It's like, why is that? It's because in every other instance, when a person is, is basically showing, communicating that their interests are more important than yours, that their time is more important than yours, that they are of more value than you are, we instinctively know that that's just not true. You're acting like you are more important than me, but we're, we're equal. Like, why should I pay more attention to you? You don't deserve more time or, or just than I do. We're, we're equal. We're both human beings in the same way. That's why it's a turnoff when people try to be more than that. But you can't say that of God. 
When God demands every thought of yours to be devoted to Him, to be, uh, in, to be done in praise to Him, every act of yours, it is because He truly is worth every moment of your time, every ounce of your attention, every degree of your strength. He truly is worth that. He's glorious. And so it's not, it's not wrong for God to do all that He does to show off that He truly is this great, this magnanimous, this beautiful for all creation to see. But another question I had was, if He really does all that for His own sake, then how is it, what makes that loving towards us? Like, don't we always sing about how much God loves us and how much He has shown His love towards us in the sacrifice of His Son? We don't, it doesn't seem like we sing so much about how He does everything for Him. Doesn't He do stuff for us? How do we put those two things together? Take an, take an example. Take two scenarios. One where a king is the ruler over a fiefdom. I think that's... Think kings rule over fiefdoms. I don't use that word regularly. But say he's a ruler over a fiefdom. He's wealthy, he's powerful, he has a strong army, but his people despise him. His people don't cherish him. They don't respect him. They don't pay attention to him. Take that in scenario one. In scenario two, all the same things. Wealthy, powerful, large army, and his people adore him. When he walks through the streets, they, they cling to him. They clamor. They, they want to, to see him, to get a better glimpse of him. They love being around him. In which of those two scenarios is the king painted in a better light? Is he shown to be more glorious, more honorable? It's in the second so if the king wants to pursue his own honor, wants, him to be, wants himself to be maximally loved and adored and esteemed, then one of the things that he must do is assure the happiness of his people. That is what God does for us. He assures, because he is so devoted, not not primarily to us. He is primarily devoted to pursuing His own glory with showing how truly wonderful He is. Because He is so devoted to that, that's why He relentlessly pursues you and calls you day after day to come to Him, to know Him, to find joy and satisfaction in Him. Because when we overflow in praise to Him, that shows off how great He is, how worthy He is. And he's committed to that. He's relentlessly committed to that. He's jealous about that. So he does all for his glory. But one of the means of promoting his glory is promoting our joy in him. And so, finally getting back to John 17. I told you I'd eventually get there. In this verse, we see both of these two truths wedded in such a beautiful way at such a crucial time in Jesus' ministry. In verse 1 of chapter 17 in John, he says, it starts out, When Jesus had spoken these words, comma, it's talking about everything that he's just said from chapter 14 through chapter 16. 
where relentlessly he's gathered his people, his, his disciples with him. He knows he's about to depart out of this world. And again and again and again, in more ways than one, he's saying, look, I love you. I will not leave you. I'm going to a place to secure a home for you. I will come back to you. I will leave my peace with you. I will not leave you as orphans in this world. Everything that I say to you, everything that I have done in your presence is to promote your joy. That you would take these things to heart even after I'm gone to show, to, to promote your joy. That is how much I have lavished my love upon you. He is genuinely in love with his people. But now, verse 17, he turns to the Father. And just think of where this is in, in, this, in the ministry of Jesus. This is often highlighted in your Bibles as Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is... Jesus standing as the mediator between men and God. Probably the last audience that he has with God the Father. Because if you'll remember how the gospel unfolds, the story of Jesus' uh, crucifixion unfolds, it's very soon after this where he does not, he no longer hears from his Father. It's very soon after this where he's crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because his Father, to fulfill Scripture and to fulfill salvation, has turned his back on his Son and abandoned him. It's like Jesus is is standing on the precipice overlooking a chasm of death and he's about to to jump over the chasm and those hands of his Father that have always been extended to him to eagerly embrace him will not catch him after this point. This is a holy, holy moment. Intra-Trinitarian communion between God the Son and God the Father. And what does He pray for before all of these events unfold? What is it that He wants? He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son in order that the Son may glorify you. On the eve of the most devastating, excruciating pain, physically, emotionally, spiritually, this is what is on His heart. This is why He's here. This is His ultimate aim, to glorify the Father. It's just beautiful where, where uh, how the author has, has set up this point where Jesus says, the hour has now come. Because the hour in this gospel always refers to this time of, of suffering, of, of being killed, being crucified, being raised from the dead, being exalted and ascending to the right hand of the Father. This hour has been referred to throughout the gospel. And every time it's referred to, Jesus is always saying the hour hasn't come yet. He knows it's coming. He knows it's looming in the future, but He says it hasn't come yet. It hasn't come. When he's at the wedding of Canaan in John chapter 2, and his mother notices that they've run out of wine, she wants Jesus to perform a miracle and inaugurate his ministry. And Jesus says, Woman, the hour, my hour has not yet come. It's still in the future. Or in John chapter 7, when his brothers, Jesus' earthly brothers, 
know that the Jews are are beginning to seriously scheme against him and to plot his death. And they plead to him. They say, if you are really the son of God, if you can really do all these things, go into Jerusalem, show off your power that everyone can see who you really are. Jesus tells them, my hour hasn't come yet. There will be a time when I come into the center of Jerusalem and everyone will see who I am. But my hour has not come. He eventually goes into Jerusalem and later in in John uh, 7, verse verse 30, and even in in chapter 8. And the people are being stirred up in a frenzy because of the things that he's saying, the claims that he's making about himself, putting himself on par with the Father. And yet it says that nobody laid a hand on him, nobody arrested him, because his hour had not come. That's a word about God's sovereignty about how God had ordained a certain point in human history when He would allow His Son to have wicked hands seized upon Him. But that time had not yet come. And yet here, Jesus knows that it is time. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify you. Here when he talks about first glorifying the Son, normally glorifying can mean praise and, and honor, like honor the Son, but principally what he's talking about here is, is restore my glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. That's what he says in verse 5. That's the splendor that I was clothed with, the light that emanated from me, the glory, the, the praise that I had, standing at the center of all creation with all of the angels worshiping me, adoring me, praising ceaselessly, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb, the Lord Almighty. Restore that, that, that glory to me and do that for your own glory. To show off who you really are. That ultimately this whole plan of salvation was enacted by God the Father. His plan to, to rescue human souls. It's this plan that, that God had in mind to, to establish His own glory that, that He had set before He had rescued Israel out of Egypt for His or the exiles for His own glory, before He had established the nation of Israel for His own glory, before He had taken Israel out of uh, Egypt for His own glory, before He had hardened Pharaoh's heart for His own glory, before He had even created mankind for His own glory, before the heavens were created that declare His glory. Jesus is, is talking about, before all that, this plan that we have, this this resolution that we made in eternity past to reconcile a people, to give them life for your own glory. Bring it to pass now. Verse 2, he says, that that's that's the reason that he gives for why the Father ought to do this. He says in verse 2, since you have given him that is Jesus, given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. 
Again, this is when he says you have given him authority. When did God the Father give Jesus authority over all flesh? This is talking about before the world existed. We created this plan to redeem a people who we knew would turn against us. And every inclination of their heart would be contrary to us. It would be hostile to us. They would pursue worthless things over the invaluable God. We knew that. And yet to so amazingly show off how gracious and patient and loving and astounding God's grace and mercy is, and ultimately His glory is, we will save them. I will endure what I'm about to endure for them. You see, God is passionate about His glory. And that is why Jesus came. In this moment when everything comes full circle, where Jesus planned at the beginning of time, before the world existed, is coming to fruition right now in this moment. The next chapter is is the events unfolding of him being forsaken by Judas and ultimately led away to his death. And yet he's pursuing the glory of God. And the central way in which he desires to glorify God is by securing eternal life to all those people who put their trust in Him. He goes on in verse 3 to describe what He means by eternal life. What is eternal life? He says in verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. Now, many of you may be aware, have heard in the past that Throughout the Bible, the the term to know is always, almost always referring to much more than just an intellectual assent, like a recognition of a fact, like recognizing that Jesus is God and that there's only one true God and that Jesus is His Son, Jesus is the Savior. Like, it's so much more than just acknowledging that. Knowing always has this, this idea of, of closeness, of experiencing, of, of intimacy. It's why it's always a euphemism, often a euphemism for even sexual intimacy. Going back to Adam and Eve in Genesis 4, verse 1. Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. That idea of just that closeness, of knowing, of proximity, of relationship, of experience. All that is also a part of of knowing. When God, when when Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 8 that God foreknew His people before the foundation of the world, that's not just saying that God was aware that He would create you. Or, or was aware of all of your days before they would come to be, but it's also commenting on this this passion, this relationship that He has had with you before you were even a blip on the radar. He has known you. He has loved you. Those of you that would be His. That's what knowing means. It's that experiential aspect. And so when Jesus says eternal life, this is what we have decided to endure this excruciating pain, to bring these people into this, this relationship, this experience of of relationship, of unity, of oneness with their God, with their Creator. 
and that they would know in this way, in this intimate way, he says, the only true God. Clearly in the background, when he references the only true God, what's in mind are other false gods. But there are many things that people can be seeking life in that are not the only one true God. They're false gods. Now you may say, well, that may be relevant for an ancient culture where they're carving images out of wood and stone and and all that, but how is that applicable today? Well, at the root of idolatry is just anything that you supplant God with. God is meant to be the center of your thought life. Anything that you think about more than God, that is ultimately your God. Anything that you desire more than God. Where you go to seek refuge, to seek relief, uh, to seek to be rejuvenated when you're worn down, that is your comforter. That is your God. My wife and I are, are, are trying to grow specifically in like learning how, how can we cultivate really pursuing joy, not in other things, but in God. Specifically, we love to watch movies. We love to, to take just like, if we, if we could, if we weren't like held accountable, we would take like a brand new season on Netflix, just get like a whole bunch of snacks and just walk it, watch it straight through. Like that's, that's typically what we can be prone to going to for relief. If there's a hard day, I, my first thought isn't, I need to get along with my Savior. I need to get along with my God. I need to know Him. I need to see Him. I need to experience refreshment in Him. In a way that honors Him. That glorifies Him. But it's to seek it elsewhere. That's one of the things that we're, we're trying to grow in. Because eternal life has been offered to us. And that is knowing the one true God. The one who is only the, only, the one true source of life. And you know, the barometer that we have to, to examine how much we are pursuing life and other things outside of God is if you were to take an inventory of, of the fruits of the Spirit in your life, like how loving you have been, how patient you have been, how kind you have been, how gentle you have been, how self-controlled you have been. Those are the fruits of the Spirit that come when we are seeing and beholding His glory. So when we feel drained, when we feel like I don't have energy to pour out on others, I just don't have the the, the joy, the... I'm not compelled towards others. I'm, I'm feeling dry. I'm feeling run down. It's, it's ultimately a result of seeking life where life cannot be found. Jesus endured everything for the glory of God and to give eternal life to His people. He gave us glimpses while He was on this earth. He says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was the work that He gave, the Father gave Jesus to do? Well, He says it in another way in verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. 
That is, I've revealed a, enough of a glimpse of who you are that people can catch it, that they can see it. When they look at me, when they look at your word, when they, when they read and, and go back through my gospel narrative, they can catch glimpses of your glory enough to, to ensnare them, to, to capture them, to enrapture them. I've given them, I've manifested your presence, your beauty to them. It's like in that, back in that wedding at Canaan in John 2, when Jesus took those six water jars and completely ordinary water, turned it instantaneously to the best wine that anyone had experienced, including the the host of the wedding party. It says that in verse 11, that that was the first time that he manifested his glory. What it means is that, that that was the first time that people around him saw in Jesus something much more than just this ordinary man that's before us. An ordinary looking man that would have blended in with everyone in the crowd. There's something more to him. There's something desirable about him. There's something that draws me to him. Jesus said, I came to do that and I've done that. They have it now. They have this manifestation of your glory. They have this, this uh, gift that's been entrusted to them in your word to behold you, to see you, to experience life, not, in the age, not just in the age to come, but even now, today, to come to you, to see you, to experience what life is truly about. He repeats it again to nail it home in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What was Jesus' ultimate aim? It was to glorify God. And He glorifies God in us by enabling us to see His glory more clearly. To behold it, to relish it, to taste it, to love it. I was, um, in closing here, I was, I always get, if I'm going to preach, I get a text from uh, Sean just letting me know, Sean's one of the pastors here if you're a visitor, um, just letting me know that he's praying for me, asking if there's anything that he can be praying for um, outside of just courage and boldness. And, you know, I told him that, you know, I'm just feeling a little dry. I'm feeling dry, my joy feels dry just because... It seems like this has been one of those weeks where your kids don't listen as much as you thought that they were able to listen. I'm guessing some of you understand what I'm saying. Like, it seems like they've reached a milestone, and for whatever reason, they just go way, like, 20 steps backwards. Um, just one of those draining type of weeks, and I, and I just told them that, like, I'm, I need to see more of God's glory right now. I need to be filled with more of His joy. And so this morning, when I woke up this morning, I saw that there was um, an email in my inbox at 4 a.m. from Sean. In the email, he said that that he was burdened by this and just you know just felt a compassion for his brother. And he was praying at 2 a.m. Just praying that the Lord would help me to see more of His glory, help all of us to see more of His glory. And so I responded to him. I told him I, it was such an encouragement to me that. I'm going to share this with the body. Um, he never responded, so he might not be okay with that, but that's his fault. He should have been on top of it. 
So I'm going to share some of the things that he that he had in this email. Um, just an encouragement, an exhortation to all of us to to behold our God, consider who He really is. He said, "I'm praying for you, brother, at 2 a.m. <clears throat> and these thoughts filled my prayers for you in our church. Oh God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear." Hearts to embrace, pursue, and love. Transform us into glory lovers. He loves His glory and He loves us, which is allowing us to enjoy making much of Him forever. Our satisfaction and peace, our healing and rest come from looking upon His glory. So he just gave me a few meditation points. Like Just consider these things of, of who our God is. Consider the glory of His presence. He says, look at, at Psalm 139. Just read through it. And, and what's bleeding through that text, what's screaming through that text, is that He is always there. He is always there. He is constantly present. Constantly praying, caring, shepherding, providing for us, because He never leaves us. That is glory. Consider His power. Consider the omnipotence of this God that can create this universe. It says His power crashes waves, throws lightning, claps down thunder, can swirl wind that swirls at 200 plus miles per hour, but it also has the intimate control of making, a, making it blow gently to cool us off on a hot summer day. His power lifts the sun, fills it with heat, and controls its radiance. He causes the planets to stay in their orbit. He lightens and darkens the seven quadrillion stars by controlling a dimmer switch and calls them all by name. I don't know if that's an accurate number of stars, but I'll hold him accountable to it when he gets back. But I get his point. He puts down nations he created simply by speaking words. The greatest display is his glorious Son overcame the grave by his power. Death to life, heart beating, blood pumping, movement, taste, love, joy all extinguished, but now alive. He says, consider His wisdom, brother. Consider the omniscience of this God that has saved you. There's nothing He doesn't know. Let it sink in. All your thoughts, all your neighbor's thoughts, all seven billion people's thoughts, all at one time. He knows your names, your needs, your joys, your secrets, your pains, your weaknesses. Nothing is hidden from Him. He knows motives and decisions. He knows every algorithm and every programming code and every gene and its function and mutation. He knows the hairs on your head. Which to me isn't that impressive, I feel like. I mean, that's one or two on a given day for me. But... Um, Again, I get his point. He knows everything. And he says in Jeremiah 3.33, Call to me, people of mine, and I will answer, and I will show you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. He's revealed himself to us. His ultimate aim in coming to this world was yes to glorify his Father, but the way in which God is most glorified is when He promotes and cultivates maximally your joy to, to the point where you can't 
help but confess His worthiness, His beauty, His love. Imperfectly in this life, yes. But there is coming a day when He will reveal Himself perfectly to His people. Fully to His people. And Peter says that in a moment when that happens, you will be like Him because you will see Him as He is. There will be no denying at that point His beauty and His glory and His love for you and His passion for His own glory. Let's pray. Father, please give us eyes to see. Reminded of of Paul's prayer in Ephesians where he echoes, he, he models this same posture of dependence upon God for the ability to see. Finding out about new believers in the city of Ephesus. He says he never ceased to pray day and night that God would do this, that He would enlighten their eyes and enable them to see the hope that He has given them. The hope that clearly surpasses everything else that they pursue. A close, intimate knowledge of the one true God and Jesus Christ Himself. Eternal life from the One who is the source of all life Himself to experience now. Not to wait. It's not just delayed gratification. It's not just denying ourselves now with the hope that one day we will experience the payoff of this. No, it's right now, knowing Him, drawing near to this infinite God who controls the universe and sustains us, sustains every molecule in the molecule in the universe by the word of His power. And yet beckons us. He calls us. He summons us. He woos us to come to Him. Let us pray, Lord, that You would give us the strength from Your own hand to take one more step closer inward to You today and this week. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.